0: Welcome to the New England Take in WKXL 1450A. am 13.9 103.9F in Concord, 101.9F in Manchester, and NHTalkRadio.com. I'm your host, AJ Kierstead. Tune into the show every Friday at 6 p.m., as well as during the 6 a.m. hour Tuesdays on WKXL in the morning, which I also host here on the station. Check out the New England Take on your favorite podcast platform favorite podcast platform because we post all the episodes there and New England take on Facebook and Twitter because I am posting videos of the episodes, podcast versions and various other things that interest me as the week goes on. This week, I'm joined by Lawrence Reardon. He's an associate professor of political science over at the University of New Hampshire, their College of Liberal Arts. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for asking me, AJ. So I I heard about an event that uh, you jumped in. It's talked about multiple times on the show. My my full-time job is at the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. So you hear me on the Legal Impact podcast here on the station and such. And I heard you uh, were a very important step in at an event in D.C. recently.
1: I wouldn't quite say an important step in. Let's say a step in. Yeah, Uh, yeah, that – uh, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, uh, worked at UNH at the, at the Carsey School. And uh, obviously, he's not in Durham these days or, and living in Portsmouth. He's down in D.C. Before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the UNH uh, Alumni Association decided to invite him as the annual speaker to their alumni meeting. And then after Ukraine uh, occurred, which everybody took everybody by surprise, uh, they started realizing the alumni office that uh, he might be busy doing other other things like <laughs> keeping the United States out of war or whatever. So they uh, they thought, well, you know, who's who else could they co- get to uh, come down and talk? And so uh, they apparently they thought of me, and I'm happy to do it because I have a family house in Fairfax, Virginia, and I. Just drove out and drove down with the dog and uh, taking care of the house. Went down on uh, Monday afternoon and and initially they said, "Well, uh, uh, Jay can make it and absolutely no problem." And then I was sitting in the audience and then one of the alumni people came over and said, "Come with me." Like, uh oh, what's going on? He got caught in traffic. <laughs> so for about fifteen minutes, I my fifteen minutes of fame. Yes, uh, and um, talked a little bit about China and you know some other you know. I was starting to get into my whole spiel about uh, how I don't think that uh, Xi Jinping, the, the the leader of the Communist Party, um, uh, realized uh, when he was I, I'm assuming he was told that uh, there was going to be an invasion. But I think he uh, just assumed, like Putin, that uh, the the invasion would go uh, very quickly. And that there wouldn't be any issues. So uh, there was. So I started talking about all the Chinese that were left high and dry in Ukraine, and calling back saying, "Stop making these crazy comments uh, uh, on the uh, internal internet in, in in China because it's coming back to haunt us here in Ukraine." So that that I I enjoyed that, and uh, I think uh, and then but I enjoyed more when uh, I could see a, a Jay coming in on the side and I said, OK, that's it. You don't need to listen to me anymore. And uh, I just uh, got off the stage and was very happy to join the audience and listen to uh, uh, <laughs> the National Security Advisor.
0: Yeah, that, that's super, <laughs> super interesting. I mean, there, there's so there's so many aspects when you look at the Ukraine situation the international implications of it. Uh, people there, all the sanctions that are against Russia and such. And your specialty is China, China foreign, foreign relations, and various aspects of that. Uh, you have PhD in political science and ma- multiple master's degrees and such. You're very well informed in, um, well, in <laughs> the, <yeah. laughs> compared to me. You're immensely more informed on the, on many situations <laughs> than I am. But what's really been interesting coming out ever since mainly because of COVID, I think it really opened people's eyes to the situation that is the Chinese government a lot more than before. Trump did a lot with his his economic relations with that country. But the COVID lockdowns and the way they handled it and kept it so secret really, I think, woke up a lot of people to the way that country operates and how different it works than a lot of other countries in the world especially with how quickly they've grown over the last 70 years and everything with that and their relationship with russia is really important recently and right. and the financial implications that come along with that i mean just to, to start off with i mean right right now when you're looking at the I mean, is there like one or two things that you feel like are like the most important aspects to China's foreign relations or are they just so integrated with so many different countries right now, it's really hard to narrow it down like that?
1: Well, I think anytime you're talking about China or Russia or the United States, they're really, you know, they're uh, uh, formulating policy based on their own national interests. What is the best for them? You know, the United States might be talking about uh, what's best for the world. Well, you know that that attitude is what's whatever is best for the United States is best for the world. And for the Chinese, um, and and to a certain extent, the the Russians hope to be able to to be a, uh, a a to regain their position as a global leader. And for the Chinese, I think they had the feeling that they had been the global leader before the Western imperialist. Um, uh, dominated the, the Chinese state and, and carved them up into various uh, uh, um, uh, semi-colonies. And, and including the, the, the Russians took over a, a million square kilometers of Chinese territory in the northeast. So um, the Chinese are, if, if I was to point a finger and say, you know, what is their primary concern? It's China. It's trying to and it's being led by uh, the uh, the general secretary of the party. You'll always hear people say President Xi Jinping, you know, uh, forget he's not. And then people will say, oh, he's democratically elected. Well, he's democratically elected Communist Party style. In other words, he is appointed by a, a bunch of old uh, uh, the Chinese men, very few women in the in the top Chinese uh, bureaucracy, and um, uh, and now they're not quite as old as uh, they, they, they were before. But uh, um, and his vision is that uh, China has a, uh, he's called it the China model, and that uh, he believes that the United States is in um, uh, uh, is losing its role as the the, the global hegemon and that the chinese uh star is rising the soviet or uh soviet russia was a a a, um, country to be admired but that uh, these days russia is a is a a shadow of what it used to be so i think for for the chinese and for the current leader of the communist party xi jinping that um, uh, they're doing all their calculations Trying to make sure that China gets out of this without too much of a uh, too much of a cost, but also thinking about long term about uh, as you know he believes that uh, he wants to be in a position in which he'll be able to get the resources that he needs and to make sure that the United States uh, is not uh, uh, assembling a coalition to block Chinese interests around the world. So. Um, i think the you know so china's looking out for china
0: yeah and they they've made considerable financial investments all around the world it's been no secret their investments in africa which has so many undeveloped and developing nations over the last few decades that have been going through all sorts of political changes and economic changes and you you go to various big cities around the world where they've made considerable investments also i mean they've really reached out to to have as much influence on other countries' economic developments as much as their own.
1: But just remember, that's a two-edged sword. Right. You know, that's this whole idea about complex interdependence and that the more uh, interdependent uh, you are, the the less likelihood you go to war. And for the Chinese, one of the things they do not want to happen, and you can kind of see that it's uh, happening currently in their foreign policy, is they don't want to get um, uh, penalized by the United States and by NATO and the EU and Japan and the and uh, the uh, uh, the uh, AUKUS and uh, the Quad and all of these organizations that the Chinese see as being anti-China, but what is our what is let's say our power and that is these Chinese investments that uh, you know with Russia. Yes, you can go after the oligarchs. You can uh, take away their super yachts. Uh, you can, you know, and, and this is a big one. You can freeze their uh, access to their um, to their uh, financial um, uh, reserves, their gold reserves, and whatnot that are, you know, all around the world and in different currencies and and whatnot. With the Chinese uh, but but the Russians are continuing on. we we keep on saying the, you know the sanctions are working. well, they are, but are they stopping them? If we did that with the Chinese, I mean their economy almost would stop right in part because of you know that it's you know they've got three trillion dollars in reserves and it's a lot of it is in dollars and not necessarily in China as you were just mentioning they're investing all over the world. And uh, you know the uh, Secretary of Treasury uh, Jenny Yellen just made a very interesting comment yes yesterday today uh, yes yesterday, yesterday I think yesterday okay thank you yesterday and essentially was saying you know if the Chinese don't get on board that they can they can all of a sudden find out that they're on the wrong side of history and it wasn't quite saying that they were going to be sanctioned but you know. Y- y- Yellen is essentially saying we're watching you.
0: Yeah, the Biden administration is yeah, very careful.
1: Must, yeah, you got to be careful and the Chinese are. This is the other thing that people don't quite realize uh is that um you know they they see China, they see those pictures of China. My god, I I look at those things. I when I uh, first uh flew into Shanghai in 1984, I flew over uh, the eastern part it's called Pudong now of uh, of Shanghai and it was all rice paddies. Now, you know, you, whenever you see, uh, whether it's a Fantastic Four or any visions of Shanghai, you see all these, these huge buildings, these huge skyscrapers, and, the, and that tower with the bulbs and all the colors and all the rest. Of it. That was rice paddies when I was there. And the transformation of China has just been amazing. And it's been primarily uh, fueled uh, by its outward-oriented development, by right. by making money, by being the workshop of the world, by being cheap labor to put together our um, our, our, uh, our our computers, our our Apple uh, uh, telephone, so forth. Uh, it uh, was
0: did China really come to come basically rise at the perfect time for for where it currently is? Like it because it, it was it was after like the soviet union kind of was flailing around in, in in the the 50s through the 80s and you could see it eventually saw the downfall of the soviet union and china was kind of growing over that time but they didn't i mean when did they really start it seems like they came right at the perfect time of globalization and the worldwide manufacturing and everything. And they were able to provide such a massive amount of labor at such a cheap rate that they were able to kind of get their way into everyone's government uh, economies so easily.
1: Well, funny you should ask, because I just published a book with Harvard on, on that very topic oh. and <laughs> another book before on the earlier period in the 50s. So yeah, <laughs> I, I, but I won't. I won't make this complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I would. Well, I, I basically asked the question: What took China so long? Yeah, because they, you know, they like you had said, the uh, the the Soviet system was uh, fairly more bund that they were not producing enough wheat. They weren't. Uh, it was just not working, and the Chinese uh, command economy was based on. Uh, Stalin's visions uh, of bureaucracy, of command economy, and five-year plans, and emphasis on steel production, and so forth. Not on consumer goods, not on any of the things that we think about. Of course, forget about free markets.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, by the After Mao Zedong dies in 1976, uh, there was a realization that they needed to, that this Soviet model was not Ah, uh, working correctly, and that it needed to be adapted. Now they had been doing that. There had been things that they had carried out before, um, uh, which uh, then uh, they expanded, including uh, special economic zones that um, uh, they uh, uh, they used um, at that earlier time. They used overseas Chinese investment, but in um, in the late 1970s, they were using. A foreign investment from um, from Hong Kong and then later on from the United States and from South Korea and Taiwan and so forth. Um, but that delay basically, while Taiwan and South Korea and Hong Kong were all expanding um, uh, tremendously, uh, South, China was in, in a doldrum. So by the late 1970s, when they make that decision to become more outward oriented, to to use uh, uh, foreign exports, uh, to use the production of of, uh, of goods as a um, uh, as a dynamo for domestic development, to export that those goods and um, and to make money, it was a a good time because that where there were many industries in Taiwan in the United States. And elsewhere, that were looking for a, a place where uh, the labor costs were low, where the uh, um, uh, um, that there were very few regulations concerning the environment, so they could pollute as much as they want. They could so there was uh, it was almost as if they that the Chinese opened up these areas and said, whoever has the money and if you've got technology, we'll will embrace you and you can do whatever you want to do. Now, of course, there's a, there's a limit to what they could do. Uh, but uh it became a very happy marriage between uh, uh um, you know this this uh, global economy that because of the the uh reduction in uh tariff barriers and non-tariff barriers that you had these uh, you know this this global uh, production marketplace that was that was arising so uh china i wouldn't say came at the right time um i they they were delayed but then they uh, they took it uh, 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 and uh, and ran with the ball, and you know they're not a, Taiwan and and South Korea are, you know, relatively small compared to uh, China. So you have the Chinese, uh, and and for foreign investors, they're looking at this huge marketplace, and they just have dollar signs or, or yuan renminbi signs going off and saying oh we can make a lot of money by having everybody drink a a, a bottle of coke or or uh, uh, uh um and well there were some other more funnier things that they <laughs> they were able to create a market within china for western goods that were not necessarily popular before so you know this um so as china begins to uh really take off uh, the leadership, especially in the past uh, ten years uh, under Xi Jinping, yeah. begins to think uh, um, this model is is uh, it works perfectly. Well, it didn't work perfectly, and the types of reforms that you know, and they never did. Uh, that was one of the the traits of uh, the nineteen seventies, eighties, nineties, and up two thousand. That the Chinese would find out something didn't work, and then they would adjust it. They would keep going back and looking. How could they? do better and that's in part how they were able to make so much money but like anything else they were problems and they they needed to address and they'd stop addressing them and so now all of a sudden you're beginning to run into like the huge problem they have with uh, the real estate industry right that um uh this model was one in which uh, very much at least in my vision and some others are based on on the way that hong kong uh finances its business um hong kong had always been a model for china you know they 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 would have their you know the top leadership would go down there and they'd see all these these skyscrapers and all the rest of it and then they almost duplicated it within in in the mainland uh, when they were doing these reforms um one of the things that they did duplicate was um uh, they used now remember uh the land is owned by they say the state. It's really the
0: party state. Yeah, pretty much. Communist you know, that, home that,
1: home. Yeah. And that's, that's, you know, that's a phrase we political scientists and others hopefully will adapt because when people say the state, they'll think, oh, well, there's a separate state and then the government does this. No, the, the party is on top and yeah. it controls the state. So the party state owns the land and they lease it out. That was one of the big reforms to be able to lease it out. It wasn't just going to communes or these collectivized things. They were leasing it out for private developers to develop um, um, uh, 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 condos and apartment buildings, all types of uh, living in spaces because of this push toward urbanization. Uh, uh, Modernization equal urbanization. That in order to modernize, you had to be urbanized. And they were pulling all of these people out from the countryside and they had to live somewhere. So these developers, many of them were private developers almost, along with state owned developers. And remember, this is a period in which they've been allowed the market to take a, a larger role. Uh, the local governments would l- lease this land for 90 years, 99 years, whatever, 90 years. And uh, the developers would then uh, advertise uh the uh these flats uh and these beautiful models and you know it, it, it looked like it was a heaven on earth type of thing and um uh and gradually these the, the uh, uh chinese building industry just ballooned where um there used to be something called the, the shenzhen speed before in china to build anything was very slow and back in the early 1980s this the special economic zone, that's opposite Hong Kong, called Ko Shenzhen, um, uh, would build these skyscrapers almost overnight. Well, you s- start seeing the same practices used across the board. Okay, two problems there. One, you begin building all of this, um, this, uh, uh, this apartment stocks, this uh, places for people to live, and they were empty. Right.
0: There's so many of that across the, the country. Still, you
1: know, they've got entire towns. You know, the famous one is Ordos in, in Inner Mongolia. That that um, um, well, now there are more people living in it. But for a while, it looked like a ghost town. Everything was perfect, but nobody was there. Their investment properties, their investment par- properties, because the Chinese people didn't want to keep the they weren't making any money in the in um, in in the banks and they weren't uh, keeping it under their bed. So, they were investing in these shelves. And remember, when Chinese build apartment buildings, there's nothing inside it, it's concrete. The, the, the owner has to put in the wiring and the plumbing and, and all the fixtures and all the rest of it. They weren't doing any of that. They were holding on to it and then hoping that in the future they would be able to flip it. Well, when you have all of a sudden these investors who want to buy for investment purposes. And the builders are, have all the capability of buying the, of, of, of building these things. Then the only problem was how they get the money to do all this, and so they essentially a Ponzi scheme arose, in which to uh, to buy the the rights to build on the land, and those prices kept going up and up and up as the local government saw this. Then the the builders would um, uh, uh, charge higher and higher prices. To uh, the uh, potential buyers who would put the money down in advance, and then the builders would use it to finish properties they had in the past, and then they would keep on building properties, and that way. So, and that way is a bit of a Ponzi scheme. But the perhaps the, the more dangerous part was that the local governments depended on these builders to buy these plots of land to rent them out. Why? Because that was their primary source of financing. That's how they built the railroad, the, the, the circle, road, and the, the bridge, and the circle. And so now, uh, the government began to realize that uh, they were running into some big problems, and uh, they they tightened um, uh, access to to, uh, for, to for these uh, builders to to access capital, and. Uh, so you have all of a sudden companies like uh, Ever Ever uh, Grand, that's uh, located in uh, the Shenzhen Special Economics Zone. I was just talking about that. Essentially, you know, it's it's it owes three billion dollars or three hundred billion dollars, and uh, and that's not the only one. There's quite a few of them, and it's not just the problem with these companies. It's the problem with these local governments that are depending on that money. So that's just one problem. That Xi Jinping is dealing with, and the last thing he needs is to be um, uh, is to find all of a sudden that the uh, Chinese uh, uh, goods are being restricted because of uh, of, um, uh, of um, penalties imposed by the United States and NATO and EU and Japan and all the rest because of their dealings with Russia. So the, you know that I said that's just one issue, which you know. Japan had a similar a property bubble in the early 90s, and Japan for nearly 20 years never recovered. And this is just one of several issues that Xi Jinping is confronting, and um, and that is going through his mind when he's thinking, yeah, the, 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 you know, the, we will have a unlimited relationships with the Russians, but then they'll say… Um, but those unlimited relations, uh, we'll say that publicly, but in reality, they're going to be very limited so that they don't hurt China.
0: Grant, to take a quick break here, you're listening to the New England taking WKXL, speaking with associate professor Lawrence Reardon, University of New Hampshire College of Liberal Arts in their political science department. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the New England Take on WKXL 1450 AM, 103.9 FM Concord, 101.9 FM Manchester, and nhtalkradio.com. I'm your host, AJ Kierstead. Continuing my conversation with Lawrence Reardon. He's an associate professor of political science over at the University of New Hampshire College of Liberal Arts. When you're talking about the uh, just the craziness that is China, I mean, there's so many pieces when it comes to the, the economy, foreign relations, how their government operates um, I, I really wanna spend a few minutes here diving into a little bit um what their what is the relationship over the last decade to today with Russia and the like Eastern Europe because that's that's really come of light recently, especially with the ruble just being uh, really slammed down. But there there's an effect of the sanctions not really doing what everyone was hoping they would do and force Russia to stop it. So now different countries are beginning to like, OK, maybe I'll accept the ruble in in various ways. Um, I mean, how is China playing into this? Because they are allies to a certain extent with Russia.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it, it's uh, first off, remember um, uh, since we started out on this track before, that for from 1949 to 1960, they were the closest of friends between uh, teeth and lips, and that so much of uh, China's um, basic infrastructure is is is, is uh, based on Russian technology, that they imported from Russia not for free they had to pay for it, but it's called import substitution. The Chinese were trying to become more self-reliant, and the problem with this relationship was when. There was conflict after Stalin dies, and Khrushchev takes over, and Khrushchev was unwilling to give the Chinese nuclear technology, and there were some other issues that uh, that arose between the two. So, starting in 1960, there was a the Soviet uh, China, uh, Sino-Soviet schism, this break between the Chinese and the Russians. Um, Xi Jinping, the current leader, is brought up during this early period when everybody was speaking Russian and this is the way they were thinking. Um, It's a very pro-Russian period. You've always, you know, I I was always uh, fascinated when I would meet these people and they say, oh yeah, we used to speak Russian all the time. But starting in 1960 or a little bit after, Russia became China's number one enemy. It wasn't the United States, it was Russia. It was Mm -hmm. the Soviet Union. And by 1969, they were actually fighting one another along the borders in the Northeast and the Northwest. And that the Chinese, when they were building these uh, uh, very extensive um, uh, underground shelters, it wasn't because they thought they were going to go to war with the United States. It's because they thought they were going to go to war with with, China, with uh, the, the Soviet Union. They moved all their industries into the interior because they were afraid of this war. Um, 1989, 80, 80, well, let's say 1980, that's a good one. 1984, I first arrived in, um, at, uh, at Peking University, and it was the first group of Russian students to come to China to study hmm. since the 1950s. And it was a fascinating group. I got to know them, and it was uh, right at the beginning of Gorbachev, where uh, there were, uh, that Gorbachev was trying to, uh, to to stop um uh, um alcoholism from uh the, the, from being such a scourge on the uh on the soviet peoples and uh, the the chinese students were having a, a hell of a good time going out to the front door of a um, peking university and buying a, a lot of uh, white lightning stuff which is just would take the varnish off of anything uh but um i actually traveled down to uh, the special economic zones with two economists and we just had I mean, it was, it was a fascinating time because the, the Soviets were beginning to study the Chinese, how the mm. Chinese were engaged in this reform process, which Gorbachev was doing with the glasnost and the, and the uh, and perestroika. 1989, Gorbachev comes down just before the, the big uh, 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 break with, um, uh, with the Tiananmen crisis uh, the six, in Jan, June 4th. After nineteen, after the early nineteen nineties, when uh, uh, after the Soviet Union falls in nineteen ninety one, China basically sees uh, the Soviet Union as you know a, a kind of a rump of itself. Let's say up to about you know 2013, 2014, uh, That um, yes, it has the uh, the natural resources that China yeah. needs, i.e., the oil and the natural gas and so forth. But the uh, and uh, you know it does have the military, but as we're and it does have uh, 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 and there's military hardware that the Chinese would acquire. But the 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 the, the Russian uh, economy is a is a shadow of what it used to be, as the Chinese economy is expanding, the Russian economy is becoming a, a shadow of itself. Um, when Xi Jinping comes into power um, you essentially Xi Jinping has as I said this kind of a love affair uh, with uh, with Russia because of this background of his his memory of, uh, of that strong relationship and which is also very always kind of interesting they that, 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 that it seems like many of the, the the Chinese really are impressed with Putin uh, you know, they, they call him like the, was it the big
0: emperor, the, the the dashi. Um, well there's a big appreciation of nationalism and well, it's nationalism
1: and showing that he's, you know, we, you know, he he goes out on, on horseback with a, you know, bare chested. And so, you know, he's going to, you know, support Russia. Of course, uh, Kim Jong-un does the same thing, but I wouldn't like to see him. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, this, this idea of nationalism that, that, so, which that 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 plays into a, a certain thing, a certain um, attitude that the Chinese have respect for Russia. But in reality, do they really respect Russia as a power? No, they're seeing it as as, that, as a declining power.
0: Hmm.
1: Now uh, I think this has been uh, this attitude I think has just been um, underscored. By what has been occurring in Ukraine recently, and you know what we just had the the sinking of, of the the Moscow when you know the largest uh, ship uh, destruction since 1945, uh, and sometimes now that was it sounds like it's from what I gather from a, a Ukraine that built a missile. We tend to forget the Ukrainians had a, a, a very active uh, military uh, industrial complex. Um. Uh, that that the, that the Soviet Union developed. Um but it doesn't matter. The 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 tactics so forth they're seeing you know the Russians as almost you know they're using tactics of 1945 of uh, when general uh, general Zhukov was uh, sending the the tanks across uh the the uh, the Polish plains to chase the uh, the Nazis uh back to Berlin. So um and, and how are they... the the uh, the the Ukrainians re- responding with uh, drones, which uh, the the Chinese have quite a few of, uh, and uh, you know masters at building them. But the uh, these other drones have been very effective, as as you can see. So, and the and the and the, the Chinese observing, you know, the how really the Russian military is. Uh, a paper tiger you know oh, that yeah. was a phrase they always used to say about the united states now i'm I, I you know paper tigers this is a paper tiger with nuclear weapons yeah so. that's
0: the issue i mean they t- they their military is a disaster weapons. and corrupt and there's so many issues there's a lack of uh, the, the soldiers not respecting the leadership there's tons of really horrifying stories about the gangs that are in right. russia and their influence on military bases yep. and such china doesn't seem to be having that sort of issue necessarily i mean what's what's the situation of the chinese military
1: well okay first off they do have gangs i just oh was, yeah uh yeah uh um uh, i just came across a document uh internal document that was um you know with all the the shutdown of the um the uh, the zero COVID strategy, shutting down Shanghai and, and uh, various provinces. That uh, the uh, this uh, particular document's talking about the fear of a colored revolution, color revolution in um, in China. In other words, like what happened in uh, the in North Africa, what happened in um, uh, the, um, uh, in Central Asia that brought down various uh, uh, communist revolution uh, communist and authoritarian regimes so the Chinese are concerned about that um the uh, um the Chinese military has actually been used apparently they're being used they've been sent to these areas to ensure that there're no uh, um, outside uh, 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 no more disruption and they're all covered in white they're called the Dabai, the the, the big whites Uh, because they're all clad in this white. But underneath, apparently, many of them are uh, People's Liberation Army um, uh, soldiers. Um, What has happened with the military over a period of time? Well, first of all, um, they were – they um, have um, um, focused their energies into reducing the size. It used to be the largest military in the world. Now it's a smaller military, but it's more technically – technologically, uh, uh, um, and more technologically capable. Uh, the, uh, you know, we make a big deal about the aircraft carriers. Well, uh, they're still a little bit behind. They've got some really, uh, some, apparently some decent ship to ship missiles, SAM missiles, so forth. So um, uh, the, the submarines, they're they're beginning to build up. Some of this is, uh, and, and also with the jet aircraft, uh, um, some of this is based on their technology. Some of it has been stolen abroad or adopted. You know, we we steal things too. This is yes. you're you know well, you're I a friend. work frank, at an intellectual
0: property school. I, you I know totally all know. About intellectual the, the, the intellectual property and tech transfer situation with China and the rest of the world is super shady. They they're just a little more upfront about it.
1: Exactly, and and so you know, you take a look at these planes, you say, boy, that does look like an F-15 now, doesn't it? Uh, but then again, look inside it, that might not be the F-15. So there's there's been a lot of money been thrown into the People's Liberation Army, uh, but they are, and they are studying. Now, you know, the, the, the big question is uh, for the, that you, that, that a lot of people throw, throw out and say, okay, so the, the Russians have invaded Ukraine, are the uh, Chinese gonna be invading Taiwan? Well, I think, you know, all of this has shown uh, that a small country, a small area, let me do my politics yes. correctly. A small area can protect itself. Yeah, and that uh, there's a big difference between rolling across the border between Belarus and and uh, Ukraine, uh, and uh, the uh, and, and going across the Taiwanese Straits. The you know we saw that buildup of of, of uh, tanks and so forth over a period of time uh, in uh, uh, in Belarus. Uh, we're also when the Taiwanese are watching what's going on with. Uh, 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 they've always been watching that border. I mean, uh, the uh, that ability to do this. Uh, it, I, I'm assuming they're going to have to use something other than um, uh, traditional landing craft. Um, so, I, so and right now the Taiwanese are are building up there. Uh, defensive capability now, as well as you've just had a, another U.S. delegation go to visit. You know, just right after the Ukraine invasion, uh, the uh, former uh, uh, secret, uh, um, Joint Chiefs of Staff um, uh, Mike Mullins uh, went to visit. Uh, the sent by uh, Biden. There was a Senate uh, group that just went over there. Japan has uh, made some interesting comments about uh, defending Taiwan. There's, you know, there's a uh, been a uh, an interesting. And this is where you, know, you kind of understand where the Chinese are going. They have been very critical of the United States and NATO and saying this is that this, this alliance has triggered uh, uh, the Ukrainian invasion. Well for the Chinese, they are worried that uh, the quad, the Indian, the, the Australians, the Japanese, the Americans, and the AUKUS, Australia, New Zealand, uh, 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 US, that these can be transformed into an Asian form of NATO. And you won't just have a bilateral defense agreement. One was just signed between Japan and Australia, Japan and the Philippines, which, you know, this was, this is post 45. We haven't had this type of thing happening. But now, all of a sudden, these bilateral defense agreements that, of course, the United States has had them for a long time, uh, they just might be turned into multilateral defense agreements a NATO uh, East. And that's what the Chinese are really worried about.
0: Well, Lawrence, this is uh, this will be interesting going forward, and it doesn't look like uh, that things will be cooling off anytime soon. So I really hope to have you join me again in the future. Hopefully, uh, there there won't be any wars going on at the time. I hope not. I <laughs> uh, sure hope not. hope we just hope we go, go back to these uh, these complex economic relationships. Uh, don't go anywhere, Lawrence. Going to have you on for a couple more minutes on the last segment of the show. You're listening to New England Take on WKXL, joined by Lawrence Reardon. He's associate professor of political science at the university of new hampshire college of liberal arts i'm your host aj kirsten we'll be right back after this welcome back to the new england tank wkxl i'm your host aj kirsten joined today by lawrence reardon associate professor of political science at the university of new hampshire college of liberal arts so about four minutes left in this segment um what is your advice to students that are considering going into the world of uh, political science in this, this current landscape is it, do you feel like they need to, they should find a focus? Do you feel like they should try and be as broad as possible? It feels like there's so many different uh, aspects to political science, whether it's domestic international, uh, that there's a lot of avenues to consider. Right. You know, I, the one thing I have to say,
1: um, I've come across some amazing students at UNH. Uh, I'm, I'm sure every professor comes has this experience. It, it makes it worthwhile. And the ones that I really enjoy the most are the ones that are, are, are curious. And um, I tell them, one, to pursue what they want. If they want to pursue political science, great. If they want to do something else, find out what really turns them on. Now, if, if it's political science, then they've got quite, quite a choice. I I'm I've always said, Students, you know, this is not a, a time for discovery, uh, which is this set phrase within a UNH, but you know, I, I still think that that's, that thing's okay. Uh, and, and in a post COVID world, okay, post COVID world, what I would hope is that students not only spend like a semester abroad studying, going somewhere where maybe in, in, a, in a country that they can't speak the language or they're trying to learn the language, or to England, it's somewhere different, somewhere out of here. Or uh, you go to another university, We've, you know, and and in the northwest or in the south or somewhere, expand the, your 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 visions, and then get another semester and go to like the Washington Center, uh, in which uh, you do internships uh, with the State Department or with uh, 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 national associations or the Hill not only does it open people's eyes, but it's also a possibility of, of getting a job afterwards. And it looks fantastic on your resume. So uh, job experience, you know, being at, at you know, I, I'm always, uh, my, my mom uh, went to Northeastern when it wasn't a very popular place and all these people had uh, job experience and that was part of the deal. And now Northeastern is such a hot property, but I think their strongest thing is that they get people to to actually have jobs and so, to get experience uh, with a job, to understand reality, I think is extremely important uh, for any of these students. And whether it's they go abroad or they're in the in the United States, just go out and do something like that. Open your eyes, and not only will it uh, it will give it's a mature, it's, it's a maturing process. Too many uh, I see too many uh, kids come to UNH. Uh, well I don't say too many, but let's say there's a, there are some people that come to UNH or any college that don't believe don't belong there. They're not ready to come. they you know they they spend their time drinking or whatever that I have to say that's a minority but they're there and then all of a sudden they disappear on you or they've got some other issues um, the, the, the people that uh, if we can help them, great uh, there are others who um, are, are, are curious they realize that, gaining a, a college experience is important. And you know, that was one of the best things that I had when I was down in uh, D.C. Uh, meeting uh, the alumni down there. I, I was able to meet some of my former students and other people, they were saying, well, how is Professor Kaiser doing? Or how's Professor Sigalakis doing? People that had been teaching at UNH for a long time and they were, their were old professors. And now, unfortunately, I'm turning into one of those old professors and seeing these people making maybe probably twice as much money as I'm making, I'm like. Jeez, I should have gotten a job like they've got.
0: (laughs) Uh, Professor Reardon, thank you so much for joining me this week. You're welcome. Thank you very much for asking. So go to cola.unh.edu, cola.unh.edu to catch, uh, get more about the College of Liberal Arts at the University of New Hampshire. Professor Lawrence Reardon, political uh, science professor over there, really appreciate him joining me this week. Go to nhtalkradio.com to get the backups of the show or if you missed the rest of this interview. Uh, you're listening to New England Taken WKXL. Talk to you next week.